One thing, Chris, we can all agree on, apparently, according to a recent poll, uh, 74% of Americans want to end daylight savings time. I'm in that 74% read, so much in that 74%. So apparently there's a website in daylightsavingstime.org. There's a lot of FAQs on here. I like the answer for does daylight savings time make people happier? It says, do you dread that day that is fall back? While we might gain an hour of sleep, the early sunsets make many of us very sad, and we don't get to see the sun at all after work. Seeing sunlight brings happiness to us. I feel like we've made some assumptions here in the FAQ. Um, Like, does it reduce crime? They say, the one thing that criminals are afraid of is being seen and identified. Logically, they then conclude, rates of robberies and assaults are higher when it's dark rather than when it's light. Regardless of what the logic is, I still sign the petition because I agree. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physicians' practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 196. I am Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. We're about one month away from our 200th episode. We're exactly four more episodes, so uh, stay tuned for that. There'll be more around that. Thanks for coming back. If you are returning, thanks for uh, showing up and checking us out if you're new. Uh, If you are new and you'd like to know more about uh, not only the show that you're listening to, but more specifically the episode that you're listening to, you can do that over at touchpoint.health. It's the website that houses all of our episodes and show notes. And you know what? Not only for this show but a number of others, uh, 15-ish, I want to say is the number maybe on uh, touchpoint.health. And so go check those out. There's uh, some hosted by uh, like uh, physicians, for example, or uh, about uh, technology and the connected hospital, storytelling, gear and gadgets. There's all kinds of fun stuff there. So you can do that. While you're there, you'll notice uh, something about the TPS report. We'd love for you to sign up for that. That's a weekly email. comes out every Monday morning with five articles from around the industry aggregated by our uh, wonderful show hosts. So you can sign up for that. We promise not to spam you. And uh, tell you what, we'll take a uh, quick pause while you go do that, and we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint. 
where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Reed, what is the one quote that for the last couple of months you've been referring to quite often? The one quote that I've been referring to quite often over the last couple of months, um, in daylight savings. <laughs> yeah, so the McKinsey study, we've referenced this a number of times, but the idea that through some surveying and, and analysis they uh, had determined, and this was early on in the pandemic, but through the first, I believe it was like the first eight weeks of the pandemic, we had seen the consumer adoption of digital technology vault, uh, I think was the word that they maybe used originally, up to five years into the future. Wow, five years. Well, you know, it's clear that the role of technology in every organization has transformed this year, and in health systems even more so. We thought it might be good for us to go back to that original survey or that study that was done by McKinsey and try to get into it just a little bit more. So today we're going to talk through the ever-changing role of technology in our world and how it impacts patient experience. And this has been updated to some degree from like, you know, some of the initial stuff that that I've seen. So it's really interesting to kind of go back and think, are those numbers real? You know, is that kind of what we're seeing shake out? And so as they've kind of go back and and maybe not gone back, but continued to study this idea, McKinsey's, you know, new numbers, if you will, uh, they still talk about the acceleration of digital and the consumer's adoption of technology and things like that. But they talk about supply chain a little bit in the interactions of their internal operations. So internal, three to four years into the future. And then they also look at the share of digital or digitally enabled products in organizations. And here's the other side of the equation. They say that that has accelerated by seven to 10 years. I guess if you split the difference, that gets us to about that five years. Yeah, I think so. And again, I think obviously this has become a little more granular as they've looked into it over you know recent uh, weeks and months, I guess, is the, is the pandemic or this the world which we're living in is is continued kind of down this trajectory. They've they've continued to study it. Certainly, they say that the survey respondents were three times likelier, three times, three times likelier now than before the crisis to say that at least eighty percent of their customer interactions are digital in nature. Wow. 80%. And, and by the way, follow the link in the show notes because this is a really rich article with a lot of different charts in here. They even break it down over the different regions and they show like how it's happening globally, how it's happening in Asia Pacific region, Europe and North America. There's a variety of different stats here that we could refer to. They say that during the crisis, companies have probably refocused their offerings rather than made huge leaps in product development in the span of a few months. So while this rapid acceleration is happening, it's not like they're wholesale just throwing old things out and starting new things. They're basically evolving their current technology and their current interactions to be more digital in nature. Which makes sense, right? I mean, it's hard probably to iterate and come up with a whole new slew of products, especially if your world is the physical product in nature, you know, over a few weeks or a few months or something like that. You're making those shifts to kind of take what you're doing and, and focus it on where people are. They talk about that the reported increases are much more significant in healthcare and pharma, in addition, financial services, professional services, 
uh, where executives report a jump nearly twice as large as those reported in CPG type companies. So again, healthcare, pharma, financial services, professional services, you know, you have services that you already offer. You're steering that expertise, the service offerings, things like that versus, you know, just retooling them all together, I guess. And you're not dealing with actual physical product that you're right. selling. It's more right. service related, right? In the survey, they dove into what is driving that change. Why are companies acting 20 to 25 times faster than expected implementing these changes than prior? And so they asked these organizations, well, what was part of the, the rationale? How did you move so quickly? And so there's a couple of stats here, which are pretty interesting. They say that just over half say that prior to the pandemic, these digital changes weren't a top business priority. But then the crisis removed the barrier. That's an interesting take, but we all know that, right? We In healthcare, telemedicine was sitting on the shelf for 10, 15 years before it actually got really implemented this year. I mean, it's almost like they're talking about virtual care here specifically, right? Uh, it, w- it wasn't a priority because you didn't need it to be necessarily. You know, I mean, people still showed up. That was the preference. Then people couldn't actually like maybe legally or, or shouldn't or, you know, whatever, you know, could not show up. So you had to turn to virtual care. So yeah, it moved, moved really fast. They say that respondents at both B2B and consumer facing companies most often cite failure to prioritize as the barrier, but the responses to other challenges differ. So again, it was, it just wasn't a priority for most. Uh, again, back to healthcare, I think that makes a ton of sense. It's interesting too. They talk to B2B respondents and they say that almost a third of them said that fear of the customer resistance to these changes was a barrier, which again, you know, as we talk about the changes in the customer through the pandemic, the customers moved. And so the businesses moved along with it, so to speak. So that also was a driver here. And that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, uh, how many people were demanding telemedicine in 2019? Not as many as are right now. And so the next thing they kind of get into is the fact that, you know what, it's not just for now. So most everyone that responded, they say, uh, really talked about how that the changes they're seeing are going to become long lasting and, and that these organizations are making the investments now to make sure that, that they really will be around, that they really will stick. And here's some indicators that they show to, to prove that point. It's not only investing in the digital technology itself. There has been a significant movement in the number of people in technology roles as, by the way, the number of customers that are interfacing on digital. This shows like a long-standing trend. You're investing on the people to build out the infrastructures because your consumers have already moved there. You better, I guess, <laughs> right? Uh, now, what this has kind of accelerated, certainly. I mean, if everybody's there, that means everybody's there, including the bad guys. So there is still a need to to work and 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 think about you know data security, uh, cybersecurity, all those types of things that were already big topics. Certainly, special especially you know you, you've seen in recent years uh, big national retailers in the news and things like that and stuff around credit cards and uh, phishing attempts via email and so all that stuff I'm sure will uh, accelerate with everyone migrating to the cloud and more digital focused and centric uh, type deliverables. 
Yeah, well, I was just reading an article last week that there's been over a dozen hospitals attacked by ransomware in the past two weeks. I mean, everybody's on high alert, right, because of this. And so, yeah, I mean, you're right. Wherever the good people go, the bad people go too. Getting back to the overall gist of this, though, while the alignment on overall strategy and strong leadership have long been markers of success during disruptions or transformations, what's going on now is very different from what McKinsey has seen in the past. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, they talk about the experimentation and ultimately the investment in digital technologies playing a key role in helping companies navigate successfully through the crisis. And they have a good little chart in here. And this is based on the respondents to the survey that had reported a 25% or greater organic revenue growth in the past three years. 72% were the first in their industry to experiment with the new technologies during the crisis. So again, they're out leading. 67% are investing more than their peers. And then, you know, you kind of have the inverse of that, certainly, um, when you're thinking about the other folks. But they're the ones out front trying this stuff and and pushing, pushing the envelope, really. Also, you're seeing this in the leadership, right? The leadership executive mindset is shifting. They say that, you know, the crisis has brought about a sea change in executive mindsets in the role of technology in business. They refer back to a study they did a couple of years ago in 2017, where nearly half of the executives said cost savings is one of the most important priorities around digital strategies. Now, only 10% view technology in the same way. That means more and more are ready to get in and get in and experiment. So that that's a significant shift. I mean, when you get your executives to start thinking about things differently, then more than likely your organization is going to follow. You know, they talk uh, even further about half of these successful companies, uh, at least they say or they claim that they were first to market with innovations uh, during the crisis. And I, I would guess that that's probably true potentially even first in their industry to experiment with some new technologies. I think we've long since seen, especially in the hospital space, no one really is like all that attuned to being, you know, the person first, you know, down the hill, right? They're not going to be the first one charging up, uh, trying to figure out some of this stuff because there's no real upside to it, right? It's like, look, well, let's, let's just wait until this is, you know, common fair and everybody's asking for it. Well, We've kind of had this inverse, right? We've, and that's the whole point of this is we've accelerated things so quickly. You don't have the luxury to wait around now. McKenzie reports this as a key aspect of a shift in the culture of experimentation in organizations. I'm wondering, Reed, I mean, I, I, I really hope, I know you and I have been frustrated sometimes at the slowness of our industry to move and shift. Do you think that the pandemic is going to radically and permanently shift our culture in a health system to be much more experimental in nature and move much more faster? I don't see how it can't. Are people still going to want to, you know, drag their feet's not really the right word, but but kind of the overabundance of caution? Sure. But again, if everyone in the community is asking for certain things, right? They they want to uh, be able to text their physician. They want to have virtual care. They want to be able to, you know, fill in the blank uh, in the digital space. Well, I mean, that's ultimately where we're going to have to go. Now, I think too, what's ultimately going to happen is you'll see through the, you know, M and A world and the consolidation. You know, we'll have buying power. We'll have some things in place where maybe there's some economies of scale where we can push this stuff out, and and more of that staying power uh, will be there. 
we're going to look back at this year and the COVID crisis as being transformative for our industry, for our culture. I mean, this is a, a once in a lifetime event. I hope so. You know, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But as we look forward, you know, we're, I think that it's important to take note of all the different ways that we're going to see digital changing the way we interact with our our customers, so to speak. Why don't we do this? Why don't we take a little break? And then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about modernization as a way to improve patient engagement. And then we'll dive into this article that's really interesting because they're actually starting to define a new consumer segment based on the post-pandemic customer. Oh, boy. Generation post-pandemic. Here we come. (laughs) We'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Before the break, uh, we were talking about this McKinsey study, and uh, we encourage everybody to go in the show notes, go look at it, because we just barely skimmed the surface. There's a lot of great data in there that talks about how transformation is occurring in organizations. Let's jump now, read into the impact it has on the patient engagement strategies that health systems are doing, and then we'll jump into this new consumer segment at the end. So the first article we're going to talk about is from medicaleconomics.com. It's oh a very riveting website <laughs> there. Is it mostly pictures? I don't, it seems like a lot of words. A lot of PowerPoint know. slides. <laughs> it's called Modernization is the Key to Improve Patient Engagement. And they start off by saying the pressure has been on physicians and healthcare professionals to bring their patient experience up to a more modern patient experience for some time. And this is from a guy named Ash Shahada, who is KPMG's National Sector Leader for Healthcare and Life Sciences. And as true to nature, he positions that COVID has accelerated that process. So let's jump into that. What does that mean when he talks about that? What does modernization mean? Yeah, so the first thing that that he really calls out is uh, creating a digital patient engagement platform. So what does that mean? It means that physicians uh, should be able to connect with patients uh, and vice versa, right? So this is stuff we've already mentioned, secure texting, email, chat, et cetera. Not that these things don't currently exist in some way, shape, or form, but either people are doing it and they shouldn't be, (laughs) or they're all kind of siloed functionality, right? That we've bolted on or added at at different points in times. So uh, he really talks about the fact that physicians are going to have to, this is going to be a must have. And so, especially as you think about certain types of care uh, that recre- you know, needs a lot of interaction. So the higher acuity stuff, you know, you think about behavioral health, social work, you know, things like that. 
And not only that, physicians will not have to just thrive by using this in the changing landscape, but they're going to also have to capture and analyze the data and analytics of these experiences to help improve and inform the experience. And we've also addressed this before, but we're talking about things like pre-populating information and asking for patients to confirm it rather than asking them multiple times for the same thing, which is counterintuitive sometimes because we always take the asking them questions repeatedly as a safety precaution. Well, here they're saying from a digital perspective, you want to make sure that this is seamless, right? So that your information populates uh, as a customer. I'm going back to this patient engagement platform piece. Don't you think people think they already have this? I think you're right. I think the expectation of the consumer is that it's already there, particularly because they're getting it from other places like any other website that does good with digital, where it pre-populates your information, where you have these experiences. I think there is a certain heightened expectation of the consumer in this experience, for sure. I think so. Another thing they call in here is having a digital presence. Uh, Physicians should have a website, a portal with functional capabilities, which we've been talking about. Uh, allowing people to transact, you know, not just brochureware, if you if you will, you know, a little bit of copy, hours, phone number, that kind of thing. We're moving from the nice to have to the must have kind of categories of things like online scheduling, image and refills. I, I don't know that <clears throat> you're going to the physician website to do that potentially, but I mean, I guess you could do a portal or something like that. But really, it's it's about integrating with a a robust uh, back to kind of the patient engagement platform, but realistically having that presence uh, in, in place is important. Uh, you know, how do they find you? How do they get to you? How do they inter- interact with you? That kind of thing. And interestingly enough, it made me think about the physician directory and your, your physician page, so to speak, through your directory, how you have to make that now an actionable integrated digital channel in which patients might land on it so they can engage with you further, right? And so they say here, ultimately though, physicians are need to, take care to reach out to patients during the pandemic and reassure them that healthcare is still safe and that the staff is taking necessary precautions. And so this reiterates a little some of the findings that Gerard did, right, around trust and safety is, is imperative throughout all of this. No, it absolutely is. And we've, we've continued to see the trust in physicians, in providers rise. And quite honestly, people feel safer going back to a doctor's office than they do going to a sporting event, for example, which is kind of some interesting stuff that we've seen. So uh, we have an opportunity. We've got to continue to work and leverage that and be good stewards of that trust. Because we need to meet that new customer, the new pandemic-influenced connected customer. And so now this transitions to the last article that just came out today by Brian Solis. It was actually published on Forbes.com, and it's entitled Meet Generation N, the pandemic-influenced connected customers that are driving this new digital imperative. That seems uh, weighty. (laughs) You didn't know that you were Generation N, did you, Reed? I guess not. So can you be Generation N and a part of another generation? Yes. So let's get into that, right? So let's talk about the connected customer. He starts off by defining, obviously referring to digital transformation, all the the speed of the digital transformation that's happening this year. He actually refers to it as the quickening. The quickening. And he says, the quickening isn't temporary. Digital permanence is upon us. Until after a vaccine is in play, 
people, for the most part, will practice safety and stay in place when they can. Well, I already do that, but I'm just a homebody. So, <laughs> and that what we, is that just a new name for uh, a homebody or a uh, an introvert? Or uh, anyway, sorry, I'm getting off track here. Talking about those conveniences that, quite honestly, much like virtual care, people are trying and realizing, like, oh wow, that was that was handy. <laughs> like, why am I not always doing this? You know, curbside pickup, obviously we've seen that at just about every location that you can think of from like Lowe's or Home Depot to, of course, restaurants and and that kind of thing. We were already buying online, uh, but they talk about the buy online and pick up in store. Uh, And we did that several times. My son needed football cleats, for example. It's one of those things where, and I think, you know, my personality certainly is one that like, I'm not one to necessarily just go shop around. Like I already know what I want. I'm just going there to purchase it. I shop be- I shop around before I ever arrive uh, nine times out of 10. And so all this stuff is really kind of in the lane, uh, you know, certainly for me. Uh, but the contactless transactions, uh, Chick-fil-A is still doing a, a good job of that. They bring it out to you in like a little basket and you take it out of the basket and some of that kind of stuff. Um, so those are the, you know, those conveniences that we're talking about. Just as a side note, buy online and pick up in store has an acronym, BOPIS. BOPIS, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to use that going forward. Um, and I may not even use that service since it has that acronym now. Exactly. <laughs> but um, so anyway, so this new generation of customers, they have new standards for what their experiences with a brand are going to be like, and also loyalty. So they, the first of all, he, he puts forward that loyalty is up for grabs, right? 75% of consumers have tried different stores, websites, brands during shutdown, and 60% of those consumers expect to adopt those new brands and stores in their post-pandemic lives and routines primarily based on that online experience. No, it makes sense, certainly. Because, I mean, it did open up the the opportunity to have new experiences. Because, again, you're forced into it. You know, much like the virtual care thing that we keep going back to. Man, 75% of consumers have tried different stores, websites, brands. I've done it. I actually do prefer those that are, you know, easy to go get, like, take out food and things like that, you know, just by the convenience sake. So this new segment read is this generation N, and the N stands for novel. I guess uh, that's Brian's way of uh, being clever, but it's not defined by traditional demographics and instead is cross-generational. See, I would have done novel with a K, I think, and then had generation K, but anyway. Sorry, nobody nobody asked me. Go ahead. So it's cross-generational, bound by similar digital behaviors, that is, you know, all of the things we talked about, evolving preferences and expectations and experiences and outcomes. Bound by, so it's interesting because I think we'll see people, because this is so much going to be driven by their experience, you know, uh, uh, geography, like where they live, some of those types of things. That's really it's really interesting uh, to kind of think about a generation moniker stretching across different generations. Well, and it's bound by that somatic marker of COVID nineteen, right? 
And and this is going to continue to grow in size and influence because, you know, like it or not, we're in the long haul with this pandemic. We're not out of it yet. We're going to be struggling with it. And, you know, they, they even estimate through 2021. So this is going to be a deciding factor for this segment. And a lot of things are changing, right? The, so digital engagement is just one part of the formula for appealing to these people. People are really, as he says, are looking for brands to, um, you know, innovate is the simplest way to say it. Uh, he talks about the fact that digital engagement is just one part of the formula. Consumer connections are essential. People are, are quickly becoming more and more digitally literate and versed, uh, probably more so than they were before because they're having to do things that they historically didn't have to do. You know, so they've been awakened, he says, to the importance of relationship dynamics beyond price and transactions. I think that that is true. I do think certainly price will come back, you know, into the equation. You know, it's one of those things where we've seen the spike. Price probably didn't mean a whole lot and now it's starting to come back to meaning a little bit more, but probably will never be you know, the bargain shopper type scenario that it was, you know, pre-pandemic. Maybe. But still the factors of like societal role plays a part, business improvement, values, even trust becomes one of those core business values, they say. And here's an interesting point that he brings out. He says that customers are now turning to an average of nine digital channels to make decisions, competing online and at levels more sophisticated than customers require Nine. Are there nine? How would I even do that? No, I know there's more than nine, but man, that's a lot. It is a lot. Well, there's a lot to this article to read. They get, He gets into advice for CEOs, chief marketing officers, CIOs. Well, I mean, we encourage everybody to go read more from this great article. I think this is a really big thought stimulator here for all of us to think about as the future. But why don't we do this? Why don't we now turn towards an interview I recently did with Jacob Jepson of Class Research. Have you ever, you know Class Research, right? I do. Yeah. Yep. Excellent group. They do a lot of research around CRMs, EMRs, variety of different things. I sat down with Jacob just recently, and um, we talked about a recent study that that Class published called Healthcare Executives COVID-19 Experience. And it was really insightful article. Now, Jacob is uh, the director of analysis. So he's very much uh, got into the data around um, what he found. But they asked a series of executives, healthcare executives, about the technologies and their strategies for investing it. And this is from a study they published at the end of August of this year. So with that, why don't we turn to the interview and then we'll be back to close up the show after this. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to be talking to someone that I just recently got to know, but I do believe we're going to learn a lot from him today. And I'm excited to uh, have this conversation. And that is Jake Jepson. Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Chris. I am excited to uh, to talk to you today about a report that recently your company did. But before we jump into that, some people listening in may not know who you are and what company you work for. Do you mind uh, maybe setting the stage by sharing a little bit of your background? So I am a director of market research. I think that's my full title. Um, I, I often don't pay attention to that. But generally speaking, what I do is I try to direct the research of a a project within a company called Class Research. And so Class Research has been in the 
kind of health informatics technology space for a long time um, as a consumer reports like um, solution. So it, for a long time, we, we tried to understand, okay, which EHR vendors were working well or not, what problems were in the industry, and really trying to help healthcare providers make buying decisions or decisions about which solutions they should use. Class for about 25 years has done, a, I think, a really good job in trying to develop a lot of research and a lot of information into you know, what is working, what is not working in the health informatics space, health, health IT space. Before I, I got to know you, I have been reviewing your reports for a number of years being in this space, and I find them to be very, very invaluable to, to the industry in general. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen your reports for a number of years and been tracking them. Today, we're going to be talking about a particular report that just recently came out back in August. It's called the Healthcare Executive's COVID-19 Experience. What was the genesis? What was the intent of, of class undergoing this research? I work for a particular division within class where we're working on something called the Arch Collaborative. My day-to-day job has been all about really trying to get clinical end-user feedback about the EHR. Um, so we currently have worked with and gotten, you know, sent surveys out to about 226 different health systems, and we have a survey base of about um, 170,000 clinical end-user surveys. We really enjoy this space. We're really trying to dig deep into what makes the EHR user experience great. What can you as an a health system do to kind of improve that experience. The best part of what we do is we really try to bring together all of these healthcare executives that that work on this problem, you know, CIOs, CMIOs, the directors of training, and we're trying to help them kind of come together. Uh, when COVID-19 hit, we foresaw that we might not be able to get some of our traditional research in. And so we actually had one of our, our committees. So we had healthcare uh, providers kind of on a committee that were directing some of our survey efforts and we asked them, what can we do as the Arch Collaborative to understand COVID-19 and to help people in this crisis, in this pandemic? And so the, the genesis of this project was really that. of we, we had a group of healthcare providers that we've been working with for a long time now, about three years we've had this project going. And, and we wanted to be able to offer them something that we could help them during this process. We're not healthcare experts in, in terms of, uh, you know, helping you to make clinical decisions. So we knew we couldn't do something like what the AMA has done and, and, and providing guidance or trying to consolidate that guidance. But we, we do know some, a little bit about technology and healthcare technology. And so we wanted to make a survey that we could have these executives kind of tell us what, what are they doing with their technology at this point in time. Yeah, and I'm excited to go through a lot of the results of this with you today on this in during this interview. But um, I was wondering, as you publish this report, what are some of the overarching themes? The big theme is uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, we I think that's something that we all know is real. And when we ask survey questions, we we definitely got that feeling here. So uh, largely, we know telehealth has been a, there's been a big push for telehealth, and we we saw that we saw that in the data we collected. Um, but what was interesting to me was just the uncertainty of, okay, what do we do now? Where do we go next? Already we've seen some drop off in that piece. And so, so that's kind of reflected in, in the essence of this report. The other pieces that were interesting that we kind of saw overarching the report was uh, we looked at, you know, how well remote patient monitoring technologies are being used, how well were people to get analytics up and running, how well they were able to have interoperability with, with some of their systems during this time, as well as, you know, how did you get people to work from home? 
Yeah. So, so you hit upon some terms that have been around for a number of years, right? Interoperability, remote patient monitoring, even telehealth. These are things that um, as CIOs, uh, CTIOs at organizations, healthcare organizations have been kind of struggling with uh, for years, but it seems like the pandemic has kind of cast a, a focus on this as being critical for the future. Is, is that fair? I, I definitely think that's fair. I definitely think that it's real. I definitely think we would lose credibility if we if we tried to say that wasn't the case today. Well, let's drill into this then. Let's talk a little bit about uh, each one of the findings, kind of break it apart. Telehealth, that's been uh, one of the areas that we've been talking a lot about during this pandemic. And I remember even at the onset, suddenly all of these health systems turned on telehealth platforms as a way to kind of address this, the pandemic and how to reach to their, reach out to their patients. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are your, what were your findings around this category? So, so I, I think unsurprisingly, it's, it's been, there, there were a lot of different things tried within our, our group of providers that kind of answered the, our survey. Um, but there's kind of this common theme of as soon as CMS allowed things like FaceTime or Google Duo or Zoom or Skype to be used. Essentially, everybody's like, okay, let's let's do this first. And so there's a, there was a great quote and a great CIO kind of gave us some great feedback of saying that here's the first thing I did. I essentially said, okay, we can leverage Skype. Let's use Skype. We don't have the time necessarily to integrate all these right now. We know we have the need right now. So let's just push forward and do whatever we can with the consumer-facing technology. Then there, there there's been some progression in just in the time that this has gone on where we started, there are some I know that are still kind of on that phase where they're just still using maybe FaceTime or Skype or, you know, even Microsoft Teams, I, I heard, uh, is integrating with an electronic health record to to do more telehealth things. And so uh, that option is still there. People are still pursuing that. But this particular CIO just talked about this interesting trend of, okay, I did this. Now let's, let's use our Epic video integration and let's push that forward and let that be the solution. And then even let's, let's try to get more tools in, you know, the, the important places of like the ER, ICU. And, and so we just kind of see this progression of, okay, we have this a variety of systems we're going to be using. Let's start integrating it within, you know, find a system that we can choose and pick and, and kind of go forward with. And then let's see if we can implement that in key locations where, where it's going to be really necessary. In addition to that, I, in talking to different healthcare providers, you know, since this report's come in, we know that the telehealth rate has dropped off. Um, uh, there's a wonderful blog I read by a doctor in Colorado um, named C.T. Lynn, but he, he showed just the rate of telehealth use now is a little bit higher than it was before. But it, in his particular data set that he was looking at, it, it wasn't nearly at the levels it was during you know, the midst of the pandemic in, in like April and May. People are trying to make a decision of, okay, do we implement a huge system to, to kind of cover all of our needs or, or, or are we going to be okay with what we have in place? And I think a lot of people are trying to now balance that of, okay, we've maybe gone through this progress of implementing something large and they're now trying to say, okay, what is going to be the future? What, what capacity do, do we need to have during an emergency and what do we need to do today to really make this be something that's integrated into what we do. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point that you made and that you found. Particularly, you know, as we learn more and more about telehealth, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. And I found it interesting that your study found that uh, at the beginning, they they really took these consumer-facing products like, you know, FaceTime and 
Google Duo, Zoom, et cetera, and integrated that. And now that the peak, so to speak, right, is dropping off and it's becoming more indoctrinated into the long-term care pathways, it is a good time for organizations to sit back and kind of reflect at what are the right solutions for the future. Do you feel that like in in regards to telehealth, although we've had that drop off, it's not going away, is it? I definitely don't think so. I don't think I don't think any of these health systems have seen it go completely away. I definitely think during the pandemic we definitely see a use case at least in emergency. I mean there's always going to be the possibility of some pandemic in the future. Uh, and it's very going to be very apparent to every leader that's in the field now to where we need to have some emergency capacity. Telehealth is great in that you don't need to necessarily have everybody come into the office. I, I think some health systems, and, and, and this is more kind of my opinion than, than maybe actual fact, and so I'll, I'll preface it by saying that, but, but I think some health systems are are seeing that there, there, there might be some cases where this is really helpful. And, and this is going to be a great path forward for maybe certain specialties or certain conditions or certain things that we can follow. And we definitely got to kind of see that and test that on a large scale. Um, and then I think there's other areas where it's just not as helpful. Until we have a tricorder that every patient has, uh, it's going to be difficult to not have patients come in to get blood work done or get tests because not every patient has the technology to you know, even take their temperature accurately. So telehealth was a big part of the technology challenge. I think in your study, it showed that 32% of them indicated that was the biggest technology challenge. But right behind that was remote patient monitoring. So let's talk a little bit about that. What did what did this study find about RPM or remote patient monitoring? Well, I, I think it's the comparison between the, two, between the two that was really interesting. So one one question we asked is essentially, you know, what what was the biggest problem? And just what you said, about a third said telehealth, about a quarter said about remote patient monitoring were their biggest problems. Um, but we also asked what percent of, of the organizations essentially have solved this problem. So 84% said that they had a solution in place for telehealth. And the remaining 16% essentially said they had something in process where it's not a perfect solution yet. They're still working on it and it's there. On remote patient monitoring, about half, a little over half, said that they had they had solved or in process, where it's less than a quarter and said they solved it. And you had about 45% of them say that it was an unsolved problem. Um, additionally, with remote patient monitoring, you know, we asked, you know, what, what technologies have you implemented at this time? And, and really very few organizations have implemented some remote patient monitoring piece. So 72% of the people we talked to, talked to said that, you know, this remote patient monitoring technology piece was the least implemented or at least enhanced technology during this crisis. So we're seeing a merging of problems where a lot of people said this was a huge problem, not being able to monitor patients remotely. Few solved it. And few were able to actually implement a technology solution. So there's definitely, I think in the market, there's, we need more information here in class. We're working on research right now to say, okay, what what are the RPM solutions there today? What have they been doing d- during COVID-19? But uh, essentially, you, you have a gap. There's a gap right here of need and not having necessarily all the technology that people need to, to solve that need. You've done some research in the past around remote patient monitoring. It is a challenging technology suite, so to speak. There are a lot of challenges by standing them up. It's much easier than, you know, saying like you, you mentioned before, like a Zoom or a, a Skype call with a patient. RPM is something that's much more integrated into the overall care pathway, right? Yeah, exactly. And and we I mean we did a report. I'm not necessarily the best expert on remote patient monitoring itself. 
But uh, we did do a report in November, you know, so before the pandemic, we, I have no idea what our results are going to say about what people have changed since then. But essentially, we looked at which vendors were there, what solutions that they have available. And there was kind of a bifurcation. You had a lot of, I'm not going to call them the old guard, but but a lot of solutions that had been around for a, a period of time. And they were very focused on meeting the needs of a provider. And you, ha- you have some newer healthcare vendors that are out there trying to offer more maybe patient-focused solutions. And so you, you do see kind of this, people are trying to, solve the problem of, you know, how do we essentially engage with, with remote patient monitoring? And I think what most people want and is really, you know, we want to be able to take all of the new, I mean, we want to be able to take the Fitbit data. We want to be able to take, any, you know, if it's a heart rate monitor or anything that maybe a consumer has and be able to take, regardless of what the technology they're using at home and have that kind of integrate into a kind of a seamless experience for a provider. So they can have all of those things at their hands when they're trying to make decisions or monitor a patient. Yeah. And I think that's a natural lead into the next overall finding that you were looking at, which is the third, I guess, biggest challenge, which is interoperability. Because when you're talking about now all of these solutions, now interoperability becomes a huge thing. And this has been a a concern for CIOs uh, in health systems for many years. So tell me a little bit more about what this report found. Essentially, uh, interoperability remains a problem. Um, I, I, that's not surprising to anybody who's in healthcare right now that there are problems with trying to integrate data between technologies. I remember learning, I, I got my master's in healthcare administration. I remember that first class uh, in, in maybe IT and just looking at, you know, here's all the systems that might exist in a normal business. You know, you look maybe a CRM, maybe a billing software. Um, and then you look at all of the different boxes and softwares and, and integrations that exist in healthcare. And it, it, it's it's mind-numbing to see all of these things. And we've made a lot of progress, but we're, we're not there where we need. And so 21% of our population essentially said, hey, th- this was our biggest problem. And again, it, there wasn't really great solutions implemented to help interoperability during this time. People didn't necessarily change a, a ton of things with what they were doing. There were a few organizations that, implement, that they said that interoperability was the area in which they implemented the most of, of, of some of their technology solutions to try to fix that. But, but really, it's, it's just the same problems of, you know, we, we have a, a community. How do we track all of this community information when, when you're working with maybe, you know, three or four health systems in some of these, in some of these communities? How do, you, how do you track something like COVID-19 or the symptoms across these, these, these units? And, and we found that A, it was a problem. B, it really wasn't solved. And, and I don't think it, it's really surprising to anybody that, that there's still going to be gaps in, in the standards that people have. Um, there was a lot, a lot of kind of the commentary asked and directly mentioned, you know, can we get some, we really want some standardized method to, to really integrate our data together. We really want something that we can, we can use and enforce the, the, the health companies to, to really integrate together in a way that, that it's going to benefit the health system. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was recent, reading a recent uh, LinkedIn uh, startup, that the top startups of the, of this year, and they saw this enormous uh, thrust of, of startup companies focusing on interoperability as being the, the main offering that they're providing. So I see that that there is a lot of interest in the marketplace as well in terms of solving this problem. Because as we look forward, I think interoperability is going to be a significant challenge for many years to come. Yeah, and especially now, I, I mean, there's legislation that's coming down that's trying to stop maybe information blocking 
come January, there's going to be uh, different changes in, in documentation burden. There's going to be a lot of things that are happening, you know, with CMS and and, and their hopes to push uh, interoperability across the board. And so it'll be very fascinating to see what new regulation does. Um, and I probably say that it's probably masochistic of me to say fascinating, but <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I love I love studying problems and looking at these things, but there's going to be a lot of solutions that come into place in, in the next couple of years as the government is, is, is requiring new and different things. Additionally, I, so on the Arch Collaborative side, again, so we have this data set of 170,000 clinical users and it's about 35 questions. It's a fairly large survey. And there's 11 key questions there that really, I think really encompass the HR user experience well. And so more recently than the, than anything we've published, but, but essentially we've been trying to look at, you know, what is the correlation between these 11 questions and, and how high quality they think this this EHR is. It's been fascinating as we've looked across, um, you know, all these different organizations and the top organizations and the bottom organizations that one of the least correlated metrics for all of these systems and, and what end users are saying are going to drive maybe the system to be higher quality was external integration. Um, and so we're, we measure internal integration, how well this EHR enables quality care, how well it's going to keep patients safe, how well it's going to help me be efficient, does it have the functionality I need? And, and all those other things are more correlated to having a higher uh, score for, for saying that this vendor has created a high-quality EHR. But it, it's just fascinating to see that this external integration piece across the industry isn't correlated with people being happier with the tool overall. I think that might be a sign of, you know, there's this market failure. It's everybody's expecting it to be bad, so they're, they're not basing their opinion of the tool off of this one thing that's just always kind of been bad. And, and there's a lot of movement. I, I, if you're on Epic, you know about care everywhere. There's a lot of really neat things that have gone on in that space of people being able to integrate with, with Epic systems. But at the same time, it, it's not necessarily meeting the ex- expectations that everybody has for that external integration of being able to get all of the data that I need right at my fingertips, regardless of where a patient has gone to care. And so I, again, COVID-19, there's a big need for it when we're trying to track a patient and they may go to, you know, two different ERs if they're having different symptoms and you can't control that as a health system, but we need to know, we need to know where these patients are and how their health is. And so I, it was a problem. It's not solved. There's a whole things, a whole ton of things that the government is trying to implement and change. And, and I'm excited to see if we can have that external integration be a, a plus for some of these organizations, but it's typically low scoring across the industry, and it's it's not being correlated to happy EHR end users. I, I would say that there's very few happy EHR end users, so to speak, right? Um, and and I recently read a a report on I think it was a uh, patientengagementit.com that they were speaking with some of the EHR vendors about this importance around developing an environment of real-time data um, and analytics that comes from that and sort of this openness, which is something new to that that sector. As we look forward with the loosening of the regulations and uh, this kind of interest now to, to create open APIs and start having a free data share, do you think that, that as we look forward, do you think that that's going to be the, the common state? Are we going to solve that problem anytime in the future? I, I don't necessarily think so. I do want to just say one thing with based on what you said. I think there is a general sentiment that EHR users are very unhappy with, with the 170,000. There are a lot of them that are happy and find you know find great uh, great ability to utilize the technology to help them with their patients. Um, so I, I just want to be be very clear that with with the collaborative, we've definitely found people 
who've been able to to be happy with with this technology. Even though, again, external integration may not meet their needs, uh, there are a lot of people that are finding success. Doctors, nurses, and allied health professionals are finding success with the EHR. That being said, I I don't necessarily know how well things are going to go for real time analytics. It, it it wasn't the top problem for most of our health systems, especially during the COVID-19 crisis that we surveyed. So only 16% were saying that this was their biggest problem. We're really trying to integrate all of these things. And, and very, again, very few people solved it outright. It was only about 37% of the population we looked at solved it outright. And, and, and really, there were only a few that really said that this was one of the top things that we implemented or, or tried to implement technology for it. And th- there, there's a lot of really cool technologies within, you know, something like Epic, uh, just native analytics. And there's a lot of things like Power BI and Tableau that people have been able to kind of put the data together. So there's a lot of things available that people have been able to use. Maybe they can't pull everything in. So we don't necessarily get the whole master data set of all healthcare in our community. But but I definitely think that was, some people found problems with it, but but most people were able to take what they had and, and find a very workable solution. So I think the only hopelessness part of that part might just be about the integration. I think there's a lot of really cool analytics out there. And there are a lot of really smart and wonderful informaticists who are, have been able to utilize the data that, that we're getting in um, either, either through Epic or through, you know, Microsoft, you know, Power BI or, or Tableau. Okay. Let's briefly touch on the other uh, trend or finding that you, you saw in this report, which is about the work from home challenges, because now we have a remote workforce, at least in many health systems, we will. And for the indeterminate future, it seems that that's going to be the case. So what, what did uh, your report find in that regard? I had it as one of my findings. I wrote it out as we talked about it. We decided, yeah, this isn't as cool as I thought it was. But, but essentially, <laughs> the, the, the answer is everybody's pretty much figured it out. Essentially, there was only one organization that was was saying that they didn't necessarily have it completely solved, but they they were in process of solving it. It was one of the top technologies people implemented or enhanced at this time, and so we we saw that some organizations, depending on just how they were organized beforehand, they it was really easy or harder to do. So some already had laptops, and so I remember one of the comments I read was, "Work from home was easy. We just asked them to pick up their laptops and go home, and they did." You know, so they already had like the VPNs working. They already had the laptops. So these individuals could just really just pick the laptop up from the work, go home, plug it in, make sure you had an inner connection and they could, you know, um, VPN in or, or have a virtual desktop that they could work from if they needed to, um, to access data or to do different things. Some found it really easy. If you didn't have that infrastructure, you did have to implement that. Um, and, and really it kind of, I think, might have forced some of these health systems to, to do that. Uh, you know, buying laptops for everybody is expensive and that definitely is it the best thing to do when maybe you have some crunch on your finances, but if you have to get people to work from home, that's really maybe one of the only options. And again, if you didn't have a VPN or didn't have, you know, ability to have a virtual platform to have people log in, people implemented that. We use Microsoft Teams. I didn't necessarily read a ton about Microsoft Teams in our survey, but like I've, I've enjoyed working from home because I have a technology that works for me. I, Microsoft, we were implementing it before this whole process as a company, a class. We were trying to experiment with it and, and essentially, it just went okay. Well, let's just try it. We we're, we're going to go do this anyways. But we and we bought all this stuff, so everybody log on to Teams. You know, don't use Slack anymore, and just use Teams. And so we were able to integrate, you know, fairly quickly. Tell us a little bit more about how you get healthcare organizations to be part of the Arch Collaborative and be part of the research that Class does. The Class has a very interesting business model. On one side of the house, if you're a healthcare provider and you're trying to make a decision about you know which EHR to use, 
which telehealth product to use. We essentially want any provider to have access to that. And the only price that we have is that you, you commit to being willing to be give us research. So tell us what you're using. Tell us about maybe some of the decisions you're having. And that helps us build a database of information. We really want to have people to have access to that information. So if you're a healthcare provider, um, you can log onto our website. Just say you're willing to share data with us. And we, we'll share essentially any of that kind of buyer decision, decision insights you need. For, for maybe making buying decisions or understanding where your current vendors are and what they're offering. On the Arch Collaborative side, uh, because it's, it's, it's a very different thing, uh, we're trying to do a major survey at the healthcare organizations. We do need kind of participation and membership. And, and what we're really trying to do is just build a group of people who are trying to si- solve this informatics problem of you know, getting the EHR to be a great experience for end users. What we want to do is really help healthcare providers and give them a place to kind of come together on EHR problems. And, and so the Arch Collaborative is our, our effort on that. I'm currently working on an academic paper that's looking at burnout and, and just the EHR experience. You know, So we, we collect all of these questions about how well EHR end users like their organization's support and efforts like the vendor itself and, and is rating about a bunch of different pieces. You know, We've talked about integration and functionality. Um, and we are finding that there, there is increased risk of burnout if, if people are unhappy with this tool. And so what the collaborative really is, is we're, we're trying to understand, here's the, the best practices for implementing this technology. And we have you know, over 100 case studies that are, are pulled from people who, in the survey, we've proven that they have very happy users and we've kind of interviewed them and dug down to give you a kind of a depth of understanding of, you know, here's what a solution looks like. And, and we've been trying to compile what are those best practices and, and really help pair people up and match people up with, with like minds that may be able to help, you know, anybody improve this problem, which, which I feel is really difficult to you know, first of all, class is an incredible resource for uh, leaders within the healthcare organization that are focused on using technology. And I strongly encourage everybody listening in that if you're in that role, or you know, people in that role to encourage them to participate and um, definitely we'll link to everything in the show notes. Jake, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really great. I appreciate you going through this report with us and sharing more about the learnings that you're finding. Thanks, Chris. All right, special thanks to uh, Jacob for coming on the show. Uh, this is uh, an interesting um, and, and personally very in tune place that I, I'm kind of watching, you know, this whole topic, trying to kind of think through what that means for our clients and, and that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, yeah, I really appreciate him coming on, spend a little bit of time with us. We've got a conference coming up. And it's uh, the Healthcare Internet Conference. It's HCIC at home. So if you uh, are unfamiliar or don't uh, know what's going on this year, hcic.net is the website. You can also sign up for the TPS report. We've got some links in there. Uh, And then we've got a few other things on the horizon on the uh, webinar front. So more to come on that. We'll be promoting that. Some of our friends across the industry uh, shortly. But let's uh, maybe dive into some uh, recommendations. I will start. Uh, Amazon Prime Day just passed. Yes, it did. I guess Prime Days. But what's interesting is their prices are extending out through the holiday season. So it wasn't like just a two-day event. It's a multi-month event, I suppose. But during that period of time, I was able to reach out. I was able to take advantage of one of their offers 
and get myself a wireless charger for my phone. Do you have a wireless charger, Reed? You know what? I do. I have one uh, actually at my office office that's kind of like a stand, sits on my desk. Yeah. This is more, it looks more like a, a round coaster. In fact, I have to be careful not to set my glass on it <laughs> at times because it does look like a coaster, but it's flat. It's the Anchor Wireless Charger. It is approved uh, 10 watt maximum for iPhones, etc. iPhones and AirPods, etc. The price on it, it was only a, like $12 on hmm. Amazon. So I decided to try it out just to see how well it works. I have it here at my desk, here at my home office. And when I'm just sitting here talking, whatever, I just throw my phone on there and it just charges it. And I'm telling you, I'm now contemplating getting rid of those wires entirely at my desk, you know, my desk side, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. and just getting a bunch of wireless uh, chargers. I'm not sure if that's going to be bad for my brain or whatever, but, you know, I mean, who knows what the impact is going to be. But these things are so convenient. And for that price point, we could buy a whole bunch of them and put them under the Christmas tree, right? That's right. No, it's an excellent idea and super useful. I remember, uh, I think I got one from my mom last year, a year before, something like that. But anyway, so yeah, they are they are pretty uh, pretty handy. It's always good to get rid of wires for sure. I am going to recommend something, which is you should uh, subscribe to a magazine like a like one that's printed. My son gets Sports Illustrated. Uh, his grandmother, uh, grandparents, I should say, uh, I think gave him a subscription for his birthday or Christmas. It's, it's going on a couple of years now. You know, they kind of keep renewing it or whatever. It's interesting because it's like, oh, wow, like here's a thing that like comes in the mail and is printed and uh, you flip through it and then you get the whiff of like the polo cologne insert or something, oh, yeah. you know, that's yeah. in there that I've kind of forgotten about, honestly. And there, I don't know, there's something nice about it. And so I keep it kind of sitting in the, in the den and, you know, able to flip through and read an article here and there and that kind of thing. But it's uh, pretty great. So yeah. So subscribe to a magazine of some sort. Doesn't really matter which one, but just get a, a printed Uh, publication mailed to you. It's kind of nice. And it's good to get mail that's not a bill. I love that idea. And I have to say that, you know, at one point, I think it was like some airline miles that was expiring. And I did the thing where, you know, you could subscribe to some magazines. Mm -hmm. And so in our household, at one point, we were subscribing to four or five different magazines. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, one of them, I accidentally checked the wrong box or maybe put in the wrong number. Because we started to get the Spanish version of People magazine. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. But still, get a magazine, even if it's the Spanish version of People magazine. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Just work on uh, become bilingual. It's not exactly. a bad thing. All right. Well, there it is. Another episode. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could do us a favor. The favor being, tell someone else about the show, um, and so that could be via email. Uh, or an actual conversation, or the next time you're on Zoom or uh, Microsoft Teams or Slack or something, but we'd certainly appreciate that. Word of mouth via digital or something, anyway, is uh, still the number one people uh, way people find out about us. So we would uh, certainly appreciate the support. If you go out there, rate, review, subscribe, uh, that would be super helpful as well. So go find, uh, if it's iTunes, Spotify, whatever it is, subscribe to us, and uh, we would certainly appreciate it. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.